Well, good morning, church. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to take it and open up to your Old Testament. And we're going to begin a series today in the book of Haggai. Now, if you want to know where the book of Haggai is, it is between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Does that help anybody? Listen, you've got this thing called the table of contents in the beginning of your Bible. Feel free to use that, okay? Even your preacher needs to use that from time to time to find these minor prophets. So feel free to use that and begin turning to the book of Haggai. We are starting a new series today. After spending 21 weeks in Colossians and Philemon, we're starting a new series in the book of Haggai today. This is called a minor prophet. And uh, you have in the, in the prophets of the Bible, you have minor prophets and major prophets. That does not mean important prophets and unimportant prophets. Major prophets just means these are large prophecies. Minor prophets means these are, are smaller prophecies, shorter prophecies. And so we're going to look at the book of Haggai today. Now, some of you might be wondering, why would we spend time in a book that was... Um, you know, written about 520 BC. I mean, this is kind of, is this relevant to our lives? Why does it matter? Why are we looking at, uh, you know, what some people would say is kind of a dusty old book? Even prominent Bible teachers today will sometimes say that we ought to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. So why would we spend time? Well, let me just tell you, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. That means it is God-breathed, and all Scripture, here's what it means in the original language, all Scripture. That means Old Testament and New Testament. It is breathed out by God. That means it has God as its source, and it is profitable. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul says that the things written about in the Old Testament were given for our instruction. And so we read the Old Testament because it helps us to understand who God is. It helps us to understand how God has formed and loved a people. It points us ultimately forward to Jesus Christ and his work for us. And there's something here for our own walk with God. And so I pray that you'll just dig in uh, to this book with me. Now, as we open to Haggai, I want to I give a little bit of context for you to understand what's going on in the life of Israel when we open up this book. And so I actually want to rewind the story about a thousand years all the way back to the book of Exodus. I'm going to give you about a thousand years of history in a, a, just a couple of minutes, okay? You don't believe me, do you? Back in Exodus, you, you all know the Exodus story, right? God has delivered his people, Israel, out of bondage to slavery in Egypt, and he establishes a covenant relationship with his people. He establishes a, a covenant that we call the Old Covenant. He gives a law to Moses, the Ten Commandments. Moses brings that to the people, and uh, that law is God's design for how the people will flourish, how they'll have a relationship with him. God knows that they will not keep the law perfectly, and so in His mercy and His grace, He provides a sacrificial system to provide for sacrifices for their sin when they disobey, and ultimately that sacrificial system would point us forward to the work of Jesus on the cross. And in this law, there were, there were certain promises that God gave. You can read about these in Deuteronomy chapter 28. God says, listen, Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. So blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. Okay, let's say that together. Blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. And severe consequences actually for 
disobedience. So that's the covenant relationship that God establishes with Israel in the Old Testament. Now, it doesn't take very long at all for the Israelites to disobey and ignore God. And you see this as the story progresses to the time of the judges. In the book of Judges, you find that every person was doing what was right in their own eyes. That sounds like the United States of America, 2023. Things go really bad. They begin to disobey. And guess what? They begin to experience consequences for their disobedience. They experience curses. And so they think, well, maybe if we get a king, then we'll be like all the other nations and we'll have a godly king and things will go well. And so God gives them what they want. He gives them a king named Saul. And very quickly, things intensify and they, get, they go from bad to worse under the kings, and things begin to get really, really bad. And even though they have some kings who have good moments, you come to kings like David and Solomon, and they fall into sin. And eventually things get so bad under the, the, the various kings of Israel that the kingdom of Israel actually splits into two. And in 975 BC, you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and things are getting really bad in the life of the people of God. And God says, listen, if you don't repent, he begins to send prophets to them. If you don't repent, then I am going to remove you from the land that I have put you in. I'm going to send you into exile. I'm going to use a foreign nation to come and remove you from that place of blessing. And that's exactly what ends up happening. In 722 BC, the Assyrian empire invades the northern kingdom, leads them into exile. In 586 BC, the Babylonians, who at this point had taken over the Assyrians, invade the southern kingdom of Israel and leads them into exile into Babylon. So by 586, you have God's people out of God's land, out of the place of blessing, and God has kept his promise. If you had obeyed me, I would have blessed you, but you disobeyed me, and so I have cursed you. And now God's people are in exile. Think about all of the blessing lost in that. That teaches us there are real consequences for sin, aren't there? You cannot disregard God and expect for him to bless your life. That's true for us. But there's also mercy in the story because God doesn't leave his people in exile. In fact, no, he begins to, to send further promises to his people to say, I've not forgotten about you. Even though I established a covenant, even though you disregarded me, and even though your consequences and you've been led into exile, I've not forgotten about my promises to you to bless you. And, and even though you've been unfaithful to me, I'm still gonna be faithful to you. Now that has the ring of grace, doesn't it? Don't listen to anybody who tells you that the Old Testament is only law and the New Testament is only grace. The whole Bible, cover to cover, is full of God's grace. God decides to be faithful to his covenant people, faithful to his covenant promises, even though they have been unfaithful to him. And so he, he tells them he's going to bring them home. And guess what? That's exactly what happens. And God does it through a pagan king named King Cyrus. I told you, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. The Babylonians defeated the Assyrians. Fast forward in the story, the Persians defeat the Babylonians. Everybody with me? 
So you have a king named Cyrus. He's a Persian king. And in 538, he makes a declaration that God's people can go back to their own land. And uh, you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 36 or Ezra chapter 1. But God finally begins to bring his people back. And so the Israelites begin to return to the land of Israel in wave after wave. They don't all come at once. It takes a, a progression. But God uses a series of leaders like Zerubbabel. Say that five times fast. Ezra. Nehemiah, some of these names are familiar to you. God begins to use these leaders to bring the people back. And wave after wave of the Jewish people begin to return to the land. And can you imagine the excitement of that? They've experienced the consequences of their sin. Now they've experienced God's grace in being restored back to their home, coming back to the land. And they're so thrilled and so excited that they begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And they, at the heart of the city of Jerusalem, they begin to rebuild the temple in 536 BC. They make a good start of it. And under Zerubbabel, they rebuild the foundation of the temple. They're so enthusiastic. They're throwing all of their energy towards this temple project, so excited to be back in the land. But then something happens. They begin to encounter opposition and threats from the people who had inhabited the land while they were in exile. And so all of a sudden, out of fear, they stop working on the temple. And for 16 years, the temple lays dormant and in ruins. They they got distracted. They, they lost their focus. Other things began to creep into the picture and crowd God out. Other things began to be greater priorities in their life. And they actually begin, instead of focusing on rebuilding God's, God's house, they begin to build their own houses. And they begin to spend all of their time and their energy and their focus and their money on building these luxurious homes. Meanwhile, God's house lays in ruins. And maybe you can identify with the Israelites at this particular juncture because some of you in the room, you made a good start in the Christian life. You knew what it was like to be in exile, and yet you received God's grace that brought restoration. You were so thankful for the grace of God and so excited, and you began to to throw all of your energy and effort into serving God. You were enthusiastic. You were committed. You were sold out. And then maybe over time, something happened. And you began to get distracted by other lesser things. Maybe other things began to get in the way. And maybe you would be honest enough to say that you're sitting here today and you can look back and say, I have wasted years focused on other things. Well, in the midst of this situation... God sends a prophet by the name of Haggai to speak to the Israelites to say, you need to get first things first. You need to prioritize your relationship with God. That is the message of Haggai. Um, It's the same message actually as the book of Colossians. Paul wrote the book of Colossians to say that Jesus ought not to just have a place in your life. Like your, your life is a pie and you give him one slice. He came to have the supreme place in your life. That is the message of Haggai, that God must have supremacy. 
that he should have priority and preeminence, that he comes first, that in the midst of all of the other distracting things in our life, that God should be at the center. We ought to have our priorities straight. You know, I really did not like math growing up as a student. It's my least favorite subject. I hope I don't offend any math teachers in the house today. But I did remember one thing from math, and that was it was really important to get your order of operations done right. Isn't that right, Cody? God ha- PEMDAS. Anybody remember PEMDAS? Parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction. My mom would be so proud right now. (laughs) I did have to Google that. (laughs) Here's the thing about math. If you get one of those steps out of order, the math won't add up. And the reality is that's true in our lives as well. If you get something out of order, your life won't match up either. We need to get first things first. And so after 16 years of the temple lying dormant, Haggai brings a message from the Lord. And I want you to see what it is. The first thing I want you to notice in the text is simply a rebuke. Haggai comes as a prophet of God and brings a rebuke to the people for their spiritual apathy and complacency. Look with me in the text. This is the prophet Haggai is going to begin by saying this. This is what you've done. It says to the Israelites, this is what you've done. Look at verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, it says, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, okay, you say, what day is that? It's August 29th, 520 B.C., okay? August 29th, 520 B.C., the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, okay? So now here's the message from God to the people. These people, speaking of the Israelites, these people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house, speaking of the temple, this house lies in ruins? So so a problem has surfaced here. The people of Israel had been putting off what God had called them to do. They'd been restored to the land, brought out of exile. They made a good start of it. Then they got distracted. Now 16 years have passed by and they have put off obeying God and rebuilding the temple. And they they are saying, God's voicing their objection here. They're saying, well, the time has not come to rebuild the temple. That's their statement. Here's what they're really saying. The time will never come. They are delaying obedience. We tell our kids, don't we, parents? Delayed obedience is disobedience. They're saying, you know, if I check my watch, it's really not time to focus on the Lord's work. And God responds to them with a question. Well, is it time to leave the house of God neglected while you build your own paneled Houses? What, he, what he's saying here is, look, <clears throat> you're asking a question about time. It's not time to build the house of the Lord. And he's saying, listen, it's not time to build your own house either. What, what he's saying is it's not that they don't have the time. 
It's that they haven't spent the time doing what God has called them to do. It's not that they don't have the money. They've got the money. They've just spent it on doing other things. Verse four says that they have built themselves paneled houses. Now, I remember the very first uh, uh, parsonage that Amy and I lived in, a pastor's small church outside of Paris. It had an old parsonage with wood paneled walls that we thought were really gross. Uh, apparently that's kind of getting back into style, I guess now, I'm not sure, but in this, somebody said no. Um, in this day and time, to have a paneled house was luxurious. It was elegant. The, the picture that the prophet is painting here is that you have, you have this well-appointed, comfortable home. You have spent all of your time and all of your money focusing on building your own homes luxuriously. Meanwhile, look at the contrast. The temple is in ruins. He says it twice. He says it right here in verse four, then he says it again down in verse nine. The temple is in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So here's the thing. If you're asking about a matter of time, God is saying, it's not that you don't have the time, you're very busy, but you're spending your time on your own homes instead of spending any time on me. It's not that you don't have the money. You have the money to go above and beyond on your own house, to put panels in your house, to have all of these luxuries. And meanwhile, my house is in ruins. To be in ruins means literally to be desolate or to be a waste. What he's saying is you have all of this personal extravagance. You spent your time on yourself, you spent your money on yourself, and meanwhile, you've given God the bare minimum. You live in comfort, God's house is in ruins. God says, my house, you've allowed to become rubble. M meanwhile, your house is elegant and luxurious. It's not that they don't have the time or don't have the money. It's just simply that they've been busy spending their time and their money on themselves. They've been like Martha in the Mary and the Martha story where she is so busy that she's missed Jesus. And here the Israelites have become busy appointing their own homes, busy spending time on themselves, busy spending money on themselves, and for 16 years, they've neglected not only God's house, they've neglected God. They've put other things before him and God's house remains unfinished and his will remains undone. God simply says to them, you have left undone what I've called you to do. I brought you back. I took you out of exile. I showed you grace upon grace to bring you back. And I've called you to seek my presence by building the temple. And for 16 years, you've wasted your life. Robert Fyall says about this passage that God, who ought to have been at the center, has been pushed to the margins. And I wonder, church, if God has called you to do something, that you have left undone. You've made a good start 
in the Christian life, but maybe you've gotten distracted and God has shown you his grace time and time again. He's called you to be obedient to him. He's called you to put him at the center, but other lesser things have crowded in and crowded him out. And God, who should be the center of your life, has been pushed to the margins. So God responds. Verses 5 and 6. And then verses 10 and 11, he's going to say, this is what you've done. <laughs> you've, you've neglected me. You spent your time and your money on yourself, building your own houses, but leaving my work in rubble. So this is what I've done. Verses 5 and 6, God begins to describe his own actions. Verse 5, now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. Drop down to verse 9. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Down to verse 10. So on your account, because of this, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I've summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on people and animals and all that your hands produce. God is simply saying, you've tried to live life without me, and there are consequences for that. You have focused on other priorities. You've moved me to the margin and put other things at the center. And as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? <laughs> you've invested all of your time and your money on the stuff of this world expecting for it to bring you happiness, expecting for it to satisfy you. And yet, when you plant a lot, you harvest little. You, you eat and drink, but it never seems to be enough. You, you clothe yourself with fine clothes, but you can never get warm. And it seems like every time you make a paycheck, you put it into your wage bag and it has a hole in the bottom. So God says, on your account, I have withheld the rain. I've brought a drought. I've brought the work of your hands to nothing. God is saying, my house lies in ruins, so I've brought ruin to your house. There are consequences for sin, church. When you neglect obedience to God and focus on other things in life, you'll find that, that whatever you're focusing on will never be enough to satisfy you. Can I get a witness to that? If you focus on your work, he says your work will be fruitless. If you focus on hunger, your hunger will never be satisfied. If you focus on means of earthly security like clothes in this verse, th that, those things will be futile. If you focus on riches, riches will be fleeting. If you pour your energy and your hopes and the weight of your life into the stuff of this world, it cannot bear you up. It cannot hold the weight of your life. And so God says, I have taken what you've been focusing your time and your money on, and I've just brought it to a ruin because you've left my house in ruins. I've got a friend who, who wrote a commentary on Haggai. 
Micah Freeze, and he says, listen, when, when you read this, you, you shouldn't be reading this as some kind of prosperity gospel. Like, you've disobeyed me, therefore all of these consequences, so obey me and then everything will go well with you. He's not saying that. He's just simply saying, you've been trying to live without me. And that never works well. You were actually created by God to make God the center of your life. And that's the only way that you can flourish as a human being. And if you expect flourishing apart from God, just realize where it will lead. All the things that you pour your life into will come to nothing. It's empty. So God brings consequences on their sin. Listen, not because he doesn't love them or care for them, but because he does love them and care for them. You see, consequences for sin are actually a mercy of God. When God shows you that life doesn't work unless he's at the center, that's actually an evidence of God's grace for you. You know, sometimes I'll have people who will come up to me and say, Pastor, my, my son, you know, is rebelling from God, and I just want you to pray that God will bless him. And I just say, I can't pray that. Why would I pray that God would bless the one who's running from him? I've got friends and even family members who are close to me who are running far from God. And you know what I pray? I pray that they would see how empty that road is. Not that they would experience blessing, but that they would realize how unblessed of a life it is to run from God. God is simply saying, you have poured yourself into all of these other things and look what I've done. <laughs> I've made it come to nothing. All of the idols of the heart we tend to exalt and put on the throne. Eventually, folks, they will hurt you. They will hurt you. The American writer David Foster Wallace gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College, and this is what he said. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Pretty much anything else you worship other than God will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Isn't that true? If you're chasing, trying to keep up with the Joneses, it seems like the Joneses just get faster. The language of Haggai, you, you put your money into your money bag and it just seems like there's a hole at the bottom of it. If that's your aim, you'll never have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, then you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. God, through the prophet Haggai, says to Israel, you've neglected me. You've spent your time and money building your own paneled houses and I've brought the investment of your life to nothing to show you how empty that is, to bring you to the one, the only one who can satisfy your souls. This is what I've done. Then verses 7 and 8, he shifts. 
And he says, listen, this is what you have done. This is what I've done. But then he says in verses 7 and 8, this is what you should do. This is what you should do. Look what he says in verses 7 and 8. The Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. That's repeated from verse 5. Verse 5, now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. Here's a tip on reading the Bible. If you see something that keeps being repeated, pay attention. Verse 5, think carefully about your ways. Verse 7, think carefully about your ways. In chapter 2, he's going to repeat it three more times. In fact, if you wanted a theme for the book of Haggai, it really is this. Think carefully about your ways. Here's what he's saying. Consider your life. Reflect on your priorities. Examine yourselves. We don't want to have what one philosopher called the unexamined life. He's saying, put two and two together. (laughs) You've been pouring your energy into all of these things that have not satisfied you. You've sought money and riches. You've sought earthly comforts. You've sought your paneled houses. And none of it delivered on its promises. Think about it. If he was a psalmist, he might use the word selah right here. Selah means think about it. Think about it. Think about your ways. Consider your ways. Examine your life. Reflect on your priorities. And then he he gives them instruction, verse 8. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house. Stop putting it off. It's been 16 years. You've wasted nearly two decades leaving my house in ruins, building your house up in luxury. Think about your ways. And then go up into the mountains, bring down the lumber, build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Go up, bring down, and build. There's a very clear progression here. Step by step, God is saying, you've ignored me, you've pushed me to the margins. Think about your ways, think where it's led you, think about how it's been empty. And then take the necessary steps to get your priorities in order and get busy doing what I've called you to do. Don't delay disobedience anymore. Don't kick obedience down the road saying, one day I'll get around to it. One day I'll be serious about my walk with God. One day I will invest spiritually in my wife and my children. One day I'll be committed to the church. One day I'll give my life to Christ. One day I'll go public with baptism. One day I'll commit to a church family. One day I'll find my spiritual gift and and be busy using it. One day I'll serve in the church. One day I'll share the gospel. One day I'll surrender to God's call in my life. One day I'll repent from my sin. God says, think about your ways, go up, bring down and build, get busy doing what I've called you to do. Don't leave undone the work I've given you to do. Let me just ask you, is there something God has called you to do that you have left undone? The fact that there has been 16 years between 536 B.C. 
when they move to the land and start the work. And now 520 BC, 16 wasted years, and yet God tells them to get busy. You know what? There's a way to look at that and say, oh, those stinky Israelites, they wasted all that time. I actually look at, at, at that with great hope because that means even if you have wasted nearly two decades, it's never too late to get busy obeying God. God gives them the opportunity here after 16 wasted years to get busy. What grace. It's grace upon grace in the Bible. I mean, if I was God, you should be glad I'm not God. <laughs> if I was God, I would order up some thunderbolts. It's like, you know, I've told you there are consequences for your sin. I've told you cursing for disobedience. And I even sent you into exile. You should have learned this. And now here, 16 years you've wasted a little lightning, a little fire and brimstone. It's appropriate. I'm so glad that God is not like me. God says, yeah, you've wasted 16 years. Think about your ways. Think about where it's led you. And realize it's never too late to obey me. Go up, bring down, and build. And I just say to you, if you have wasted years, focused on things that will not satisfy, it is never too late to turn and obey. A, a, a sweet woman in the first service came up and told me about her father who put his faith in Jesus at age 97. It is never too late. Maybe you have been kicking the can down the road saying, it's not time, it's not time, it's not time. And God's word to you this morning would be simply to say, it's time. It's time. And look at what happens. God says... <clears throat> I'll be pleased and glorified. If you'll get busy doing what I've called you to do, I'll be pleased and glorified with it. Isn't this the goal of our life? Isn't this like the whole point for which we exist is to bring God glory? This is, this is the whole thing, folks. This is why you were made by God. You were made by God and made for God. Everything else, every other pursuit will leave you hungry and thirsty and unsatisfied. But if you will live your life in a theocentric way, that means God-centered, not at the margins, but saying, God, you are my life. He'll be pleased and glorified in you. That's the purpose of our lives, to bring God glory. And God receives much glory when his people obey him. So what happens with the people? How do they respond? Well, I want you to notice their response. All right, all of that was point one. <laughs> but the next two points are going to go really fast, I promise you. Look at verse 12. Here's their response. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people, let's say it together, obeyed the Lord their God. Hallelujah. This is one of the rare occasions when a prophet comes and delivers the message and the people respond favorably. They obey, it literally says in Hebrew, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. 
and the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And so the people, what does it say there? Feared the Lord. I just want you to notice a couple of words there. Notice they, they obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of the prophet Haggai. There's a real important thing to notice here, a respect for God's word. The people hear the word of God and they receive it as what it is, the word of God. God's word is an important theme throughout Haggai. You'll actually see it. I encourage you to read these two chapters. There is some reference to the voice of God, the word of God, the declaration of the Lord. In two chapters, you'll find no less than 27 references to the word of God. The people hear the word and they receive it as what it is, the word of God. And then they fear the Lord. Notice that at the end of verse 12, they feared the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, it doesn't mean that you're scared of God. God is not spooky. It, it means a reverential awe. It, it means a healthy respect for who God is. It, it means an appreciation for who God is. It means an astonishment at who God is. It's, it's an awareness of God's holiness and an awe at God's majesty. That's what it means to fear the Lord. An awareness of who he is and an awe at his majesty. And the people recognize that. They, notice they, they fear the Lord in verse 12. Notice the word Lord there. It, most of your Bibles will have this in all caps. Um, that means that this is, uh, in Hebrew, it's the covenant name of God. It's Yahweh. They feared Yahweh. In other words, they recognized the one speaking to, to them as God himself. What kind of God? Well, he actually is identified in a unique way in these two chapters. We've actually sung about it about an hour and a half ago whenever we started the service. <laughs> He's the God of angel armies. You see it in verse 2. You see it in verse 7. Actually, it's all throughout verse uh, 9. It's all throughout these chapters. The Lord of armies. The older translations call it the Lord of hosts. What's a host? It's, a, it's an angel, uh, an angelic army. So to be the Lord of hosts means he is the God of angelic armies. Do you have an awareness that when God speaks to you, it is the God of armies speaking to you? Do you have an appreciation, an astonishment, an awe of who God is? That's the people's response. They fear the Lord, and because they fear the Lord, they obey the Lord. All the people obeyed the Lord their God. Verse 14 says they began work. Here's one of the few examples where the people respond in repentance and obedience. And folks, this is actually evidence of the Spirit of God in you. If you hear a call to repent, a spirit-filled believer says, yes, Lord. You, you know, you can't say no, Lord. That's a contradiction in terms. No, Lord. If he's Lord, truly Lord, you can't say no. The only appropriate response, and it's actually evidence of the Spirit of God in you, is that when you hear a message like the message of Haggai, to put God first. 
to put first things first, the spirit-filled believer says, yes, Lord. I'll fear you. I'll have an awe and an astonishment of who you are, and it will result in obedience. We just encourage you, if you have put off obedience, put off some decision for the Lord, put off some act of obedience, if you've left something undone today, put first things first. Amen? And there's a promise that God gives when you do that. And I don't, I, I'm, I'm done, okay? Done, except for the last couple of verses. <laughs> Just notice verses 13, 14, and 15, there is a reassurance that you get. When you will respond to the Lord in obedience, just notice there's some, some great hope in verses 13, 14, and 15. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. And then the Lord, notice this phrase, roused the spirit of Zerubbabel. Roused the spirit of the high priest Joshua. Roused the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So just notice, he promises them his presence. I am with you. Here, newsflash, he had never left them. Even in their spiritual apathy and complacency, any, even in 16 wasted years, God had never left them. He was with them the whole time. People will tell me from time to time, Pastor, I feel so distant from God. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you feel a sense of spiritual sleepiness and you feel distant from God. Let me just tell you, that's not because God has walked away from you. You might have walked away from God, but here's the thing. When you walk away from God, if you just stop and turn, he's right there. He's with you. Jesus makes this promise. In Matthew chapter 28, the last words to his disciples, the Great Commission, he says, right, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and then the promise, right? And I am what? I'm with you always to the end of the earth. He promises us his presence. He also promises us his power. Notice the repetition of the phrase. He roused the spirit. He roused the spirit. What is that? The, the, the sense there is that the people are, are discouraged. They are downcast. They, they've been brought to an awareness of their sin and their neglect of God and his house. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you say, man, I have put off obedience. I have wasted years there's no hope, and maybe you are downcast. You know, the Lord lifts up the head of the downcast. That's, that's what God's in the business of doing. When your spirit feels crushed, maybe you just look around your life and you're like, the things I've invested in are rubble. The things I've spent my life in are ruined. And you are downcast and discouraged. You realize God can rouse your spirit. He can lift your head. He can give you his power to do what he's called you to do. Don't forget that when you get busy getting first things first, prioritizing obedience to the Lord, he's with you in it. He'll strengthen you in it. He'll rouse your spirit. And not only will he give you his presence and his power, he'll give you his provision. He would provide everything they needed for the work. In chapter 2, he says, foreign kings will bring wealth to this place to be able to build it. You think you don't have the resources to do what I've called you to do? I've got the resources. I'm the, 
the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. God owns not only the cattle on the hills, he owns the hills themselves. And he's going to provide everything they need to, to, to do what God has called them to do. Maybe you're trying to obey God, but you're worried, will God provide for me? Folks, Haggai is a testament that if you, listen, God's work will never lack God's supply, someone once said, and God will provide for you. And, and he has provided all we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1 says. And his ultimate provision for us is in Christ. Amen. As believers, we are empowered by the Spirit, redeemed by the Son, given all that we need to be about the, the business of obedience. And let me just tell you, as I, as I close this morning, we have a greater motivation to obey than Israel did. Because in the Old Covenant, I told you at the very beginning, the promises God made, blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. Now, that's a pretty good motivator. Obey me, I'll bless you. Disobey me, I'll curse you. But it's not a sufficient motivator. It'll motivate for a period of time, but it's not sufficient. And you see that in the life of Israel. It motivated them for a little while, and then they would disobey. In the gospel of Jesus, we have something more, and we have something better. We don't live, listen, we are not Israel. We don't live under the old covenant. We have the new covenant. And here's the thing that blows my mind about the new covenant. The old covenant is blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. Here's the new covenant. God knew that we could never perfectly obey him. And yet he wants to bless us so much that he sent a perfectly obedient one who, although he was obedient, received cursing so that all of us who are disobedient and deserve cursing can instead receive blessing. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus taking our curse on the cross, being raised victoriously from the dead so that if we'll cast our hope on him, Put our trust in him. Even though you're disobedient and you deserve cursing, you can receive the blessing of God because the cursed one was cursed for you. Is that not a motivator for obedience? And we don't obey for the blessing. In the new covenant, we obey because we have the blessing. Ephesians chapter 1 says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And I've shared with you that great quote that we don't work for God's favor, but from God's favor. And that should motivate our obedience. Amen? So whatever God has called you to do, go up, bring down, and build. If you're a believer in Christ today, put first things first. Whatever that happens to be, whatever that matter of obedience might be for you, Fear the Lord, obey his word, remember his blessing. He'll give you his presence, he'll give you his power, he'll give you his provision. Go up, bring down, and build. If you're not a believer here today in Christ, let me tell you the very first thing that should be first, and that's a relationship with God's son. If you've never put your faith in Christ, the reality is... <clears throat> 
You deserve cursing, but God can give you blessing if you'll turn to his son. If you've never done it before, don't put it off. Don't, don't say another time, another time, sometime. The, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. In a moment, we're going to sing a final song of worship. And after we do that, as you leave this room, out in the lobby, there are decision prayer partners. They're wearing badges. They would love to talk with you today about what it means to have God at the center of your life, which is only possible through Jesus. So I invite you, as you leave, if you'd like to know more about following Jesus, just walk right out there and you can and learn more what it, what it means to, for Jesus to be the center of your life. And church, I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to sing one final song to the Lord. Jesus, we are so thankful for your grace upon grace upon grace. We're thankful that time and again, though we neglect you, you are faithful to us even when we're unfaithful to you. So Lord, may that grace motivate our obedience. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who's putting off a decision, that today would be the day that they turn in obedience. For some, that may be salvation. For others, it may be baptism. For some, it may be committing to a church family. For others, it may be repenting of some sin or surrendering something to you. Or whatever it is, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to move in our midst. Convict us of our sin. Show us what obedience looks like and help us to follow you. Not for our glory, but for yours. And we pray it in Jesus' name.